The following is brought to you by Will Harris, Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, and Craig. Hello and welcome everybody to the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast for February 16th. 2022 after valentine's day can't believe we're already halfway through the shortest month of the year primaries are heating up we might not be going to war what i thought we were going to war this whole time we'll give you the big update on Russia and Ukraine at the point that we are recording this right now on Tuesday. Looking better? Looking better? Maybe? Looking better? We'll go over it. The former president of the United States, Donald Trump, uh, had a hell of a weekend on his listserv. The only place where he has a broadcast platform these days is his email list. And uh, uh, he was uh, uh, glittering in his anger because he feels that there's not enough coverage around the biggest news story of the planet. If he were in charge of things, it would be gigantic block lettering in the front Page of the New York Times saying Trump was right. What this is in reality is an extension of the Durham report. If you are one of our conservative listeners, I don't need to tell you what that is. For liberal listeners, you're probably going to want an explainer. And that's what we're going to give you a little bit later on, because there are some new involving new, new, new things, new moments, new developments. With the Durham report. And, you know, you should know about it. I think you should know about it. I I think that this, if I might agree with our former president, I do think that this is being a bit undercovered. But I will explain everything leading up to it and through it a little bit later in the program. Also, uh, uh, Jeff Maurer, he is the writer of the I Might Be Wrong Substack, former writer. For last week tonight, he did a deep dive on Gutfeld, the Fox News show that is unlike a lot of other late night comedy programs, actually a ratings success in the modern era. Now, it is also reviled by liberal viewers, but then again, so is most content on Fox News. What we're going to discuss is not necessarily whether or not uh, you know, Gutfeld is funny, but what is funny in politics these days? And specifically, has the dynamic shifted where the authority is now liberal and the rebels poking fun are now conservative? Something that would be a polar opposite flip from how uh, you know both Jeff and I grew up. If you are a fan of the political comedy deep dives, boy, do we got 40 
minutes for you on it. So uh, I think a lot of you guys, based on some of the feedback that we've had to like our Jack Allison conversation and some other stuff, are definitely going to want to stay around. Bird So here's the first update when it comes to Ukraine. They're about to get paid. The United States is reaffirming our strong commitment to the Ukrainian people by joining with allies and partners to mobilize robust international support for Ukraine. The U.S. government is offering a sovereign loan guarantee to Ukraine of up to $1 billion to support its economic reform agenda and continued engagement with the International Monetary Fund. The offer, combined with strong partnership between Ukraine, the IMF, and other international financial institutions, the G7, and other bilateral donors, will bolster Ukraine's ability to ensure economic stability, growth, and prosperity for its people in the face of Russia's destabilizing behavior. Those are the words of Secretary of State A. Blinken. But... That's not the big news. The big news is that it appears that some of the buildup of armament and troops from Russia on the northern border of Ukraine in Belarus are beginning to move back out. And so we get our first glimpse at what might be a possible thaw in this particular standoff. One, that will be seen from a few different angles. Because should this be a thawing of the tensions between Russia and Ukraine, and specifically the drawing down of troops that might have been poised for an invasion, not an annexation, but an invasion of Ukraine. Well, the United States will say it is the muscular threats of the United States and the Biden administration that warned Vladimir Putin from moving any further. And... Some might say, including Russia, that this was always a military exercise between Belarus and Russia. This had been announced in the past, and they're just ending their military routine. And all of this, the talk of invasion, has been hysteria driven largely by the United States and the United Kingdom, both of which have floundering leaders that need their citizens to look elsewhere. What I find fascinating about this scenario is really what's happened with the president of Ukraine. Because Zelensky, the president, has kind of sounded more like Putin than he has sounded like Biden. He's said that he is thinks that the invasion talk is hype. He jokingly, which this got reported as fact, but he jokingly 
said that, oh, well, they're going to be invading on Wednesday, apparently, because that had been an, a, a date that was floated out there. So here is the official quote from Russian, uh, uh, their, their, their defense ministry. Troops in Russia's military districts adjacent to Ukraine are returning to their bases after completing drills. Russia's Interfax news agency cited the ministry as saying that some large-scale drills across the country continued. Some units in the southern and western military districts have completed their exercises and are returning to base. Uh, a reporter from the Financial Times in Kiev said Russia is uh, returning some of its troops to the bases after military exercises were completed, the defense ministry said, signaling some de-escalation of the military buildup on Ukraine's eastern border. By the way, Europe's equities and U.S. stock futures rose while the oil price fell on news that units were moving back. I have been upfront with you guys from the very beginning with this, that I have, I had no idea why Vladimir Putin would make the move of invasion. And I'm willing to say, number one, I do not have access to the information that the state department says they have access to. Number two, I am not an international scholar. I am just a barking dog on the internet. However, while Vladimir Putin has in the past tried to annex pieces of the old Soviet Union back under Russian control, an invasion under these hot lights would be a escalation even for him. The cost of it would be extraordinarily high and not only from the United States. You know, we, we, we pretty much saw, you know, uh, uh, France and Germany as well as the United Kingdom in pretty, you know, solid lockstep saying that there would be tremendous, tremendous cost for Russia, largely because if Ukraine is taken, then a lot of these countries, I mean, are, are like we are now on the border with Russia when it comes to NATO. You know, if if Russia took Ukraine, then all of a sudden NATO countries are bordering Russian power. And so now we are very close to an Article five invocation, which is the, the basically all for one, one for all clause with NATO that should Russia incur into a, a conflict with any of the member countries that now we would be at war. That's a high cost, you know, and also the other side is I just never really understood what he wanted out of Ukraine right now, at least. But at least we're not going to war. Donald Trump likes yelling on the internet, but People don't let him yell on certain platforms, so now he just yells via email. Hey, and boy, did he do a lot of yelling over the weekend, specifically uh, initially enjoy because he feels like he's been vindicated. He has been saying for five years now that he was spied on by the Obama administration and the Democrats and Hillary. This has been a thing that he has said for a very long time. And he feels that he was 
absolutely vindicated by a new court filing by special counsel John Durham. He says that the information that is being alleged by this special counsel is bigger than Watergate. So, let's go ahead and dig into this. Number one, if you spend enough time in conservative and specifically MAGA spaces, you will have heard the phrase, the Durham report. For Trump supporters, it is the final proof of what they have known all along, that Trump never had a relationship with Russia, and the cloud of suspicion kicked up to support that idea was directly manufactured by partisan actors. Here is the best as I can tell it, reality on that. John Durham was a lawyer who previously was assigned to be the attorney for the District of Connecticut. In 2019, he was directed by Attorney General Bill Barr to investigate the beginning of the Russia investigation, which, of course, eventually led to the Mueller report. In 2020, he was appointed special counsel to continue his work through the Biden administration. So where does Durham come from? Well, he'd previously been tapped by by Obama's attorney, attorney general, Eric Holder, to investigate the legality of the CIA's enhanced inter- interrogation techniques. No charges were ultimately filed after that investigation. So, if John Durham has been appointed to look in to the beginnings of the Russia investigation, And the Trump supporters believe that what will be unearthed here is final and unquestionable proof that all of this was directed by Democratic sources. Well, what does this latest news actually say? To understand that, we must go back in time to September 2016. Attorney Michael Sussman. (laughs) Yes, this is an entire story that revolves around a lawyer named Sussman. He works at a law firm called Perkins Coie. It is a pretty distinguished one. It's been around for 100 years. Their primary work is with tech companies, up to and including Google, Intel, Twitter, Facebook, and Amazon. In addition to that, They are known for doing political work, including and specifically at this time with Sussman with the Hillary Clinton campaign. In September of 2016, Sussman goes to the FBI and tells them that researchers that he is in communication with have stumbled upon something very interesting. DNS communication between the Trump Organization and Alpha Bank, a financial institution with Kremlin ties. Okay, so that's in September of 2016. Goes to the FBI, tells them this. It is in October of 2016. So again, we're still pre-election here. October of 2016, these connections, the connection between Alpha Bank and the Trump organization is revealed for the first time in Slate, 
Here's how they describe it. The researchers quickly dismissed their initial fear that their logs represented a malware attack. The communication wasn't the work of bots. The irregular pattern of server lookups actually resembled the pattern of human conversation, conversation that began during office hours in New York and continued during office hours in Moscow. It dawned on the researchers that this wasn't an attack, but a sustained relationship between a server registered to the Trump organization and two servers registered to an entity called Alpha Bank. End quote. The Slate article specifically tells the tale of independent and, according to the Slate research, nonpartisan malware researchers who happen to stumble upon this information. That article makes no mention of the FBI. We'll get back to that in a second. While it might be hard to sort out exactly how this played going into the final months of 2016's fateful election, Remember, a lot was going on at that time. We're talking about the FBI reopening the Comey investigation, the Access Hollywood tape. We're still dealing with the fallout of the Podesta email leaks. But this was something that uh, did generate a fair amount of press. And as we would eventually come to find out, any kind of seeds between direct help of Russia and Donald Trump became something that was very much focused on after the results of the election. Now, the New York Times, it is important to say, did push back on the idea that these servers were connected and this was some kind of smoking gun between communication with Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump. They did go to the FBI and the FBI does tell the New York Times that they looked into the connection and found it to be incidental. At the time, Trump spokeswoman Hope Hicks categorically denied any contact, saying, quote, the Trump organization is not sending or receiving any communication from this email server. The Trump organization has no communication or relationship with this entity or any Russian entity. Clinton's campaign had a different tenor. Quote, this could be the most direct link yet between Donald Trump and Moscow, said Clinton administration or sorry, Clinton campaign senior policy advisor Jake Sullivan. He continued, we can only assume that the federal authorities will now explore this direct connection between Trump and Russia as part of their existing probe of Russia meddling in our elections. For those of you who have not followed the Ukraine situation, Jake Sullivan is now the national security advisor for the Biden administration and has been one of the point people here. Although that is not to say that he is only a pure political hack that got put into position. He was previously Biden's national security advisor. So he has been in that orbit for a while, but here he was in a much more retail political lane not the staid State Department verbiage that uh, uh, his new job requires, current job requires, rather. Okay, everything here goes back to Sussman's first meeting in September with the FBI. It was in that meeting that, according to Durham, Sussman misrepresented himself by not disclosing and specifically saying that he was not there as a lawyer to the Clinton campaign 
and a prominent internet company. So he, Sussman, told the FBI, according to Durham, that he was not there in any kind of political capacity. For that, he earned an indictment last year. So Durham indicted Sussman for basically peddling political information when he specifically lied to the FBI and said that he wasn't there for political purposes. Durham is now going to face trial for that. And it's in that trial that we have the new bit of information that has a lot of people talking. Last week, in a court filing for that trial, Durham further alleges that an associate for Sussman exploited capabilities his company had with the executive office of the president to acquire non-public governmental DNS information, quote, and this is from the Durham filing, for the purpose of gathering derogatory information about Donald Trump. So before we go any further, let's understand what that is. For the government to run and be a secure organization, regardless of who the president is, you have cybersecurity vendors, hopefully some of the best in the business, that are there to monitor your network and make sure there is nothing strange going on. What Durham is alleging is that somebody, and and I'm going to take the jump here and say a client with Sussman's law firm, Perkins Coie, or somebody that Sussman just knows, was one of those cybersecurity vendors. That cybersecurity vendor, according to Durham here, for the purpose of gathering derogatory information about Trump, unlawfully went into those DNS logs and found something they could use. What was that thing? Well, now we have to go to another meeting that Sussman had with another three-letter agency. This time, it's after the election in 2017, and it's not with the FBI. It's with the CIA. But similar to that meeting with the FBI, this revolved around DNS records and possible connections that they could prove or at least hint toward a communication between Trump and Russia. This time, uh, from what Sussman told the CIA, it was that Trump officials were allegedly communicating with Yota phones, Y-O-T-A phones. They're Russian-made smartphones that are rare in the United States. Durham contends that the information to prove that there was any kind of undue or odd communication between these servers and Yoda phones were deliberately cherry-picked and distorted. So somebody who had access to the DNS records only presented certain DNS records to hint at the idea that something bad was going on. Durham specifically cites to prove that these things were cherry-picked, that there were similar connections to DNS records during the Obama administration. According to Durham, 
This was another Sussman ploy to raise the eyebrows of intelligence officials toward Trump. And I am going to reasonably infer here that the communication between the intelligence agencies would likely trickle out through both Congress and then the media. Therefore, continuing to center the idea that there was a Trump and Russia connection, therefore providing momentum for the Mueller invest what would eventually become the Mueller investigation, blah, 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 rinse and repeat. So, with all that, was Trump spied on and is, as he contends, this worse than Watergate? Well, first and foremost, let's let's kind of take a, a, a meta level approach to this. Meta is in the, the the general, you know, 10,000 view look and not the Perkins Coey client. Almost this entire story, the Trump and Russia thing, has been on inference and rumor. The most concrete elements of it have been special counsel investigations. There's a lot that we can do. I mean, geez, there hopefully at some point, at some journalism school somewhere, will be a, a breakdown of some of the reporting through the Trump administration and and specifically with with this particular scandal because there was a lot of stuff that was run on primary anonymous sources that I think this is the kind of situation where you get yourself into trouble with it because these stories, when they are alleging things that are massive, massive stories, the concept that Donald Trump would be a vassal to Russia is a huge story. But if you don't have it nailed down, then it kind of becomes noise for the sake of noise. So let's understand all that, that the, the most credible information that we can pull out of this was either the Mueller investigation or now what we are seeing is being alleged in the Durham investigation. So understanding all that, I am going to say the next few sentences with the assumption that what Durham is alleging is true. And that specifically is that non-public government information was obtained and manipulated to advance a notion within the intelligence community that Trump was in league with Russia. Now, notably, and I want to point this out, nowhere does Durham allege that there was eavesdropping. Again, this was just looking at DNS records, which is a record of internet traffic. In my opinion, what happened, if Durham is proven right, is dirty pool. A duly elected president deserves a chance to prove themselves to the country on his or her own merits. I think we can all agree on that. If you win an election, you should be able to prove yourself. 
I don't honestly think that anyone could say that the Russia cloud and everything that came with it allowed for Trump to do that. Maybe that's the new reality that we live in where and Donald Trump is certainly not giving that grace to Joe Biden. But if we understand that our principles say that everybody should be allowed to do it, then I do think that if this was largely manipulated and if it was initially skimmed from governmental information that should not have been in public hands, then spying is a loaded term, but I, I'm i going to stick with dirty pool. I'm going to just stick with dirty pool. Is it worse than Watergate? I, I don't know. I mean, Watergate started as dirty pool too, but what made Watergate fascinating was that it was a cover up. And then there was an explosive revelation of tape recorded evidence that proved the cover up. So I don't know. I, I, I tend to think that Watergate is just overused as an example. And it is the World War II of hack comparisons because everybody only remembers one political scandal. I, I, I believe in you guys, the listeners of this show, that we can remember more than one political scandal. And so therefore, not everything needs to be Watergate. So I do think that this matters. I do. I, I, I genuinely believe that the more we look at the Russia allegations as hollow, the more we understand them to be hollow, uh, the, the more it is, I believe, unfair that so much of the initial Trump administration was dominated by it. I think as we found out, there was no shortage of political disagreements that people had with Donald Trump. He can, should, and was criticized for those. If this is hollow, then it is something that people should know about at the very least, if not be punished for, for the primary actors. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you, thank you, thank you, everybody who has come on home to support this program. I'll let you guys know before that uh, uh, there's a million ways that, that you can support this show. Letting your friends and family know that uh, uh, this podcast exists if, if you think that they're going to like it. Uh, you know, here's here's another thing. Especially if uh, uh, some of the stuff here, I know there's some people who are really, really worried about the Ukraine stuff. If you believe that my tenor on the Ukraine stuff is something that they might appreciate hearing, an even keel look at 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 how things are going, that's not a, bo- a bombastic tone, then just go ahead and send it to them with a little time code. Hey, you might want to listen to this here. If somebody wants an explainer on this whole Durham report thing. Send them with a time code to the beginning of that segment. But of course, there is always a need for the money. And if you'd like to support this show financially, you can head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. $3 Club gets two bonus podcasts each and every week. That is signing up on our Patreon at the $3 level. Bonus podcasts on Monday morning early. In fact, it's usually out Sunday night. The late edition. The Thursday, that's that's also there for you. 
And you also get those, of course, if you sign up at any level above that as well. There's also the folks who, you know, give a one-time donation. Let me hit you one time. I would like to thank my man, Alan, uh, uh, who just out of nowhere on the Venmo, just a blessing for you, for, for, for your boy, uh, Justin Robert Jerbs, with a C note. Oh, you love to see it. You absolutely love to see it. Thank you so much, Alan, for your generosity. Uh, you are a king among men. Understand this. That, that when you're an independent media, oh, man, you're not looking at a check every two weeks. You are singing for your supper, and I count each and every bill that falls in the hat at the end of the performance. Thanks to everybody for doing it. I greatly appreciate it. Let's go ahead and get back to the show. Oh, also, TakePoliticsSeriously.com. That's where you sign up. Our guest today is a great writer for his uh, Substack. I might be wrong. He is going to join us to talk about the state of comedy in the world of politics and what the success of Fox News is? Question mark, question mark, question mark. New late night comedy show Gutfeld has to tell us. Let's go ahead and welcome back to the show. Jeff Maurer. Welcome back, Jeff. Thank you very much for having me. Good to be here. So your Substack, uh, and we were talking a little bit before we started recording, is is blowing up. Everybody should go check it out. Let's actually, uh, uh, I already already plugged it before, but for folks uh, in your own words who who are are uh, have not entered into the world of, of of your Substack, how would you describe it? It's comedy and politics. There are basically only three things on this planet that I know: it's comedy, politics, and soccer. Uh, I've purged the soccer, so you don't have to sit through that if you don't want to. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's it's political comedy. I used to write for last week tonight. It's kind of in that vein. It's more of my own voice. I might be wrong. Substack.com. If I'm doing it right, it's both interesting and funny. That's the goal, anyway. I would I would agree with it, and it's always fun. And really, Substack in a way that I have not experienced since the kind of aughts boom of blogs has given me the opportunity to read a lot of people's writing as it evolves because mm-hmm. the Substack boom, like the blog boom kind of brought a lot of people to the yard all at once. And, and what I very much enjoyed about your writing is that it, it feels like a couple months ago there was, it was, it was a, a little bit closer to what would have been pitches for last week tonight. And yeah. it has slowly kind of become more <laughs> of, of it, of, of, of a, 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 I might be wrong voice. And that's something that I, as, as a writer, just, I love to see the evolution of the natural kind of evolution of writing. Well, thanks. I, I, it's funny you say that because it was just like a week ago that I went back and I read one of my early pieces, which is not that long ago. It's only eight months old. It's not yeah. that long ago. But you're right. It's like I could hear, oh, it's still I'm still kind of writing in John's voice a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> and it's yeah, it's, it's it's becoming my voice more and more. The last week tonight writers always joked that because you're so joined at the hip as a writing staff, you're locked in a room together for several days a week. You become each other. So we joked that yeah. over the years, you know, we it, we started out, there was a Jeff Maurer voice and a Julie Wiener voice and a Jill Tupis voice, et cetera. And then over the years, they just kind of became one amalgamated voice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The thing that I noticed the most is that the 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 cadence of the writing felt almost still tied to the visuals. 
to yep. like a visual joke. And it's like in television, that's what you have to do, right? Because yep. there has to be something. Otherwise, it's just a guy talking into, in, into a camera, which, you know, considering, you know, last week tonight is among the furthest you'll ever see on television of a guy talking into a camera. Uh, sure uh, you is. still need <laughs> some kind of uh, visual there. But anyway, now, now we're now we're getting yeah. in the weeds. But considering we're going to spend this entire time talking about comedy, that is not a bad appetizer to begin our main course, which is you dissected Gutfeld. The mm-hmm. uh, runaway smash hit for for Fox News and and really a a a breaker of the curse of conservatives can't do comedy regardless of what you think about it. It's called a comedy show. <laughs> it's doing very well. That's something that has not uh, uh, happened before. Uh, what can you tell us about uh, your deep dive into the gut felt of it all? Well, I can tell you that gut felt is a thing and people are watching it and it's a show now. <laughs> and it, which is that may sound like I'm damning with faint praise, but that is remarkable because for a long, long time, people wondered, why isn't there a conservative version of The Daily Show? Yes. And, you know, me as a comedian for a long time and then eventually writing for Last Week Tonight, which is in the Daily Show universe of shows. I was always getting asked, why is there not a conservative Daily Show? And I always gave an answer. That was, you know, I'd say, well, you know, there are just fewer conservative comedians than there are liberal ones, which is true. Yep. Uh, And it's also I would get kind of esoteric and say, well, it's a thing about, you know, what's the dominant culture and comedy is inherently subversive. So when the when you want to be subversive, you end up if it's the George W. Bush era, you end up kind of undermining George W. Bush and you end up with a left wing perspective. So that was my answer. And for a long, long time, it was just objectively true that there was no conservative version of The Daily Show. In 2007, Fox News actually tried this. They put on a show called The Half Hour Comedy Hour, which was exactly The Daily Show, except from a conservative perspective. And it flopped. It didn't even last half a year. It was just on and off in no time. Um, But Gutfeld, which is a different format, it's very panel based. So you can with all these shows, by the way, you can debate, are they? Are they comedy? Are they news? Are they something in between? I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to get away from being really strict about the definition there. It is certainly a more lighthearted version of, you know, for example, the five or whatever. They're doing jokes and stuff. They have written yeah. bits. They're doing jokes. Um, and it's getting like big numbers. These numbers are always they're apples to oranges, because for one thing, I don't have access to data about like streaming views and DVR views. But just based on the raw viewers alone. Gutfeld has like a very big audience relative to the other cable. So not Colbert, but cable yeah. political comedy shows, daily show last week, tonight, Sam B, et cetera. You know, I, and I, I think what really cracked it in reading your, your review of it is that, and this is something that the comedians know very well is comedy is audience dependent. Like you, mm-hmm. you, it is, it helps if you have a warm audience, it sucks. If you have a cold audience, it, it is, it is very communication dependent. You need, everyone needs to know kind of what they're on the same page for. So for the daily show, it helps that they can be a kind of a news show parody with a lot of written and sketchy kind of things on the same network that is famous for Chappelle show and key and peel and, and South park and all these kind of subversive things. Same with HBO, uh, Mr. Show tenacious, a rich mm-hmm. flight of the Concords, rich comedy history there. 
Fox News, the people that are watching, if you just think of Fox News as a room in the way that you would think of Comedy Central or HBO as a room, yeah. is probably not there for a bunch of wackety schmackety, let's put on a wig and and, and fall down <laughs> jokes, right? Yeah. I mean, I'd say Tucker Carlson is wacky in his own way. Yes. Uh, although, sir, I mean, if you're looking for unintentional comedy, you can't do much better than Tucker. But. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think but I think one of the reasons Gutfeld has succeeded is that he's kind of found a way to walk that line. Yeah. And that, yeah, you do have an audience that they're very old on Fox News. The numbers bear this out, mm-hmm. uh, but they're sticking around and they do want him certainly to hit on the conservative themes. It's like when the M&M's thing happened, when they issued the press release saying yeah. the M&M's are too sexy. It's like, well, obviously, that's going to be a week worth of shows. And sure enough, it was. He knows what his audience wants, but he has injected uh, comedy into it. And it certainly is. It's not like the old old being like the 2000s sort of religious conservative type of comedy. It's more in the libertarian conservative kind of vein. The one thing that I was surprised that you didn't mention much was uh, his kind of legacy on Fox News of being the red eye host, which which I thought was actually a a a funny show. I thought that it did absurdist comedic bits about as well as anybody could expect to do it. Now, it was in the graveyard. I think it was literally after they played their primetime slot and then yeah. replayed their entire primetime slate. And then at sometime at three, two thirty or three o'clock in the morning, yeah. there was now an original comedy show hosted by Greg Gunfeld, Greg Gunfeld, which the times that I did catch it, I enjoyed so much so to the point where like, as he began to sort of permeate the membrane into the actual Fox News machine and became mm-hmm. more of a sort of mainstream talking head sort of uh, a pundit, it, it was it was kind of a bummer for me. This seems to be 75% of what he was is doing on The Five and then maybe... 25% of a little bit of the frivolity that, that happened with red eye. Yeah. When I wrote the article, I'd never seen red eye. Oh, so that's why, that's why I didn't mention it. It was on at three. You think I'm watching Fox news at 3am in the morning. I mean, I can tell you that I'm not watching Fox news at any hour of the day. Yeah. Except, except when I need to know what's going on on Fox news. So no, I had never seen red eye though. I did get a many messages after the fact of yeah. people telling me he's kind of been honing this format on red eye. And I think it shows because, you know, in the article, I don't have a lot of good things to say about the content of the show, to be perfectly honest. And I and I normally would not even get into whether I liked it or not, except that, as I explained in the article, Greg Gutfeld himself will like go after Colbert for being not funny, which personally I think is out of bounds. I think that's violating a comedy rule to go after somebody for not being funny. You can't have that in comedy or it's just going to be an endless pissing match of people yeah. calling each other not funny it's it's not cricket as they say yeah but, i think i think that's that's also sort of just you know the most unfunny conversations that comedians are a part of right oh god are, yes. are just it's just it is it is such a drain to have people who are you know in the craft explaining hey this person's you know craft uh, was bad well and it's totally subjective right yeah i mean what counter argument needs to be made other than i disagree you know? yeah. <laughs> was like, I, I find this say person otherwise. unfunny. I disagree. Yeah. <laughs> okay. We're <laughs> at we're the done. end of the road there. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so I, I, uh, am, I, I don't have a lot of good things to say about the content of the show, but I will say he has figured out that format. 
He has figured out how to make panels work. And the main thing he's done is he has all people who are in the sort of politics as entertainment space. It's not the thing that Bill Maher used to do on the old, you know, five person panels he would have on politically incorrect, where it'd be like, um, you know, an expert from the Brookings Institute and then the bass player from Hoobastank. Yeah. And and they would debate. Yeah. Um, it's not that. It's all people who are in the politics and entertainment space. And as, you know, as television, like if I was a TV producer, I would recognize like, yeah, he's figured out this format. It, it kind of works. I think that's that's the biggest thing that that I took away of like, OK, well, why is this different? Well, because it's like a slightly saucier version of uh, uh, the, the five or any of these yeah. other like just the 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 talking head panel people that they have. You pointed out that they have the same guys on there. So it's more of like a British chat mm-hmm. show than mm-hmm. it is, you know, a a thing. So that also builds up, you know, a, a audience uh, understanding of them. And and mm-hmm. then also the fact that like, you know, you put in the little uh, interstitials there. But the thing that I really found fascinating and it's something that I've kind of had in my head for for a while is something that you mentioned right at the top of this interview that mm-hmm. comedy is subversive inherently. Like it always wants to point out the naughty thing that we all know. And yet for whatever reason, we don't want to say. Right. And now. And let's use Colbert as as an example, somebody that defined this this genre of immersive comedy with his Colbert character on Comedy Central mm-hmm. that now is, you know, about as mainstream as it can get. You know, he, he regularly mm-hmm. has friendly, congenial chats with the most powerful people in, in, in the world. And, and that is not anything that is odd is the liberal aesthetic now just kind of the man and therefore the comedy there is more comedic opportunity on the right yeah i mean my argument in the article is basically yes i think that's kind of changed i certainly don't want to first of all like i don't want to hold colbert or any other show up as the show that defines defines the genre it's always i'm always more comfortable talking about you know the general environment in which these shows exist than any particular show so I don't know if what we're seeing on Colbert really tells yeah. us what we need to know. I, I, in terms I, I, I don't, yeah, I, I don't think I don't think it's it's per se Colbert. Although I I do yeah. think for he he to me is is kind of like the 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 broadest spectrum of like what was very daring for him on Comedy Central versus where he is now. But it is not uncommon to have everybody who is in the traditional late night catbird seats basically make liberal political talking points yeah. that are serious that are not funny. Yeah, well, last week tonight, we always uh, debated, like, when is this show just going to become MSNBC? And we, yeah. <laughs> we were afraid of that. At least in the writer's room, we were afraid of that. We're like, that's when we know we've done it wrong, is when we just become MSNBC. It was something we always worried about and did not want so to that, do. Oh, so you guys worried about you guys becoming MSNBC, not MSNBC becoming you. Like, like MSNBC Correct. wouldn't add jokes. You well, would just well, get so serious that you would forget to write jokes. Correct. But though I would also argue that the second thing has also happened. If you watch some of these MSNBC shows, which is also not a place I really hang out much, but like they're in the entertainment business. They're trying to make their shows entertaining. They don't really have like uh, set up punchline jokes with a rim shot afterwards, yeah. but they are like saucy and witty. So there is kind of a convergence between the late night world and the 
political news world. They do sort of seem to be merging a little bit. But to get to the broader question about like what's happening in society, you know, who who's culturally dominant right now? It definitely was the case when I started doing comedy in the mid 2000s. The right was definitely culturally dominant at that moment. And like, how do you measure these things? You know, the okay. Bureau of Labor, Labor Statistics does not have a cultural dominance measure. No. <laughs> so we don't have any hard numbers here. But like what I remember, you know, coming out of the 90s, uh, you know, Ellen came out as gay in her show tanked and was canceled soon afterwards. The right was very upset about Murphy Brown being a single mom. Uh, they were very upset about Sinead O'Connor tearing up a picture of the Pope on SNL. These were things like the right could end you. The right could end yeah. your show. And just when that was maybe starting to ease a little bit, 9-11 happened. And then there was another round of conservative dominance. And during this, of course, Bill Maher got literally canceled. His show got yes. literally canceled because of a comment he made. Uh, the Dixie Chicks were soon after that. Their career took a major hit. The right was still culturally dominant. And you can see evidence for this in the fact that The Daily Show was so big because they were subversive and they were yeah. pointing out the ridiculousness of this cultural dominance during the George W. Bush presidency. And then Colbert came around in, I think, 2007 is when that show went on the air. And another really good artifact, by the way, is Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. Ah, yes. You remember the show Studio of 60? Course. Yeah, no, no. That was that was the, 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 the Armageddon and deep impact of sketch comedy shows between that and yeah. 30 Rock debuting <laughs> at, the, at the exact same time because everybody who's been involved in sketch comedy knows, boy, that's interesting behind the scenes. It's an interesting show. <laughs> it is funny that, yeah, uh, Studio 60 and 30 Rock debuted in the same year and everyone was like, oh, they're, it's the same show. And then you watch them. They could not be more different. They're trying no. to do entirely no. different things. M mostly, mostly dominated by the fact that the show written by people who wrote sketch comedy actually had funny sketches that the yes. people that were making were performing. <laughs> it turns yes. out for all, for all of his skills, Aaron Sorkin, not, not, not exactly Jim like. Downey. No, but who I like, and I should give a brief primer for uh, people who aren't familiar with Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. <laughs> but this show is legendary among comedians for exactly the reason that Justin's pointing out, which is that it was a show about a sketch comedy show. It was a very it's clearly about SNL, SNL, an SNL yeah. type show. It was it was it was an L.A. based SNL. Correct. And yeah. they made the mistake of showing the sketches on the show and the sketches <laughs> were not funny. Also, it was always that it's supposed to be this genius sketch comedy show and they're showing these terrible sketches and then the world reacts like, you've done it again. <laughs> you've done it again. So it did, it did achieve legendary status among comedians, even though I like Aaron Sorkin. Let me say that one more time. I like Aaron Sorkin. I think he's done a lot of good stuff. But the reason I bring it up is because all the plot lines are that on that are about how the right wouldn't let you do funny sketch comedy. Yeah. Every genius sketch. And look, every sketch they wrote was genius, but yeah. every genius sketch would be they'd always have the plot line was always the network would come down and say, oh, you can't say that. Oh, we're going to get phone calls. It was all about being canceled by the right. So it's kind yeah. of a good artifact to show that the right had cultural dominance in that moment. And I think. Now, 15 years later, it's pretty clear that the left has a similar kind of cultural dominance. Don't run afoul of this thing or that thing, because if you do, it's going to be bad. So I think that that that's a fascinating vector to kind of uh, pin, quote unquote, cultural dominance is is the idea that you can financially or career wise be hindered for saying the thing and the thing before used to be 
you know, uh, something that would offend a a corporate executive who by and large is conservative because at that point in a pre largely evolving to the internet world, the pre internet dominance world, the gatekeepers were all that matters. The record executives, the television executives uh, uh, and the agencies that were, that were there. That's all that mattered. Uh, Now there's a lot of different bosses, but a lot of those different bosses all kind of agree that they very much are are invested in some of these liberal causes. And so it's like you mm. you certainly don't want to have an old video unearthed or or yeah. to to say something that would be that would be a foul of that, which I guess makes the naughty thing saying the thing or being unafraid because an old video was unearthed. Yeah. Well, certainly one thing that's changed is it is a lot easier to summon a mob these days. Yeah. And obviously it's not only the left that can do it. There's still, you know, right wing Twitter mob can come after you. Absolutely. Happened to Kathy Griffin. Um, you can summon a mob a lot easier. You know, one example I thought of the other day when I was watching the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. Remember the the boob on the Super Bowl? Of remember when there was Janet a boob? Jackson. Yeah. yeah, it was a yeah. good boob. It was a good boob. Quality boob. I, yeah. I, top top five boob at the Super Bowl, I would say. But it was a I mean, big certainly, deal at the time. certainly a a one a top one percent boob shield. I mean, I that mean, was that's that my was opinion. The, that was that. <laughs> I mean, like the fact that she had a nipple shield on was, uh, I think, an under <laughs> an under remembered element of of that wardrobe malfunction. It does kind it does kind of undermine the argument that it was a total accident. It's like so you're wearing nipple shields no, all that the was, time. That was her athletic nipple shield. You know, that's <laughs> like that was like basically dry fit. You know. Yeah, yeah. At any rate, <laughs> I. I, I was in favor of the boob, but many people were, were dead set against the boob. They were extremely offended. They thought it was a dastardly boob. They wanted yeah. no part of it. But you had to pick up the phone back then. Mm-hmm. You had to pick up the phone and complain. Funny story, by the way. At last week tonight, my office mate, Jill Twist, her phone number, because we were in CBS's uh, offices, like we were next to 60 Minutes and other CBS shows just because yeah. the office space. Um her number somehow was the old complaint line number <laughs> for CBS. <laughs> so she would frequently get calls from people who had obviously at some point many years ago, ri- physically written down the number and, you know, put it on the refrigerator. Yeah. And then they were upset about something on CBS and they would call Jill and complain about it. They would just, <laughs> just, was- just years ago, they wrote it down <laughs> waiting for Magnum to step in yes. it again. And boy, how did they find their moment? Yes. Yes. And, uh, and Jill would always have to explain, I actually, I don't even work for CBS, but it was funny. Cause you realize like, Oh, there are still people who pick up the phone and call and complain yeah. about what they're seeing on TV. But that was the process back in the day. And you did have to be committed enough that if you saw a boob at the Super Bowl and were enraged by it, you had to pick up the phone and call. And it was difficult to get all your friends on board with Twitter. It's just really easy to summon a mob now. So it is the ease of use in terms of whipping up a frenzy. That is one major thing that has changed. I think there is also a difference in assumption psychologically, and I don't really know what the underpinning is of it, but if you see 10 people stand up and say the same thing on Twitter, psychologically, maybe mm-hmm. it's just me. I assume that there's a lot more than 10 that agree. Whereas mm-hmm. if 10 people all stood in front of a sandwich shop and said, this sandwich sucks, 
I would just kind of assume that 10 people were upset or had yeah. a personal vendetta. There's there's something about the dilation of the Internet that makes me just assume, oh, no, they are the tip of the iceberg. Where before, yeah. if if a bunch of people called and said Janet Jackson's boob uh, destroyed my son's childhood, I'd be like, uh-huh. whatever, ding dong. Like you and yeah. you and nine people were upset about it. Who cares? That's right. It's much easier to get along with your day. I, I also think on Twitter the in a lot of ways, the dumbest stuff people say travels the best because, yes, I mean, certainly the dumbest stuff people say it's it's going to get more retweets and responses just because it's so dumb. It's so dumb. It drives engagement and it sticks in your mind. If somebody says something that's medium dumb, you'll probably have forgotten about that in five minutes. But if it's really stupid, you might find yourself chewing on it for the rest of the day thinking, how could anybody think that? How can anybody be that dumb? So, yeah, I do think that the, the dumbest opinions are sometimes overrepresented psychologically, if nothing else. I, I think, man, yeah, that's fascinating. We're getting into some weird, some weird Internet theories, but I, I <laughs> totally agree with you. I think that there was an element in the 90s when you looked at somebody like Howard Stern and you would say, OK, well, the pinnacle of being a name that people know or something that just lives in people's heads rent free is to be equally loved and hated. And that was very much a a, a mythology that he also fed into that, you know, well, half the people love him, half the people hate him, And, but everybody wants to listen to him now in a world where we have so much choice for, for media, the idea of loving and hating people is a little bit more dicey because it might, you might chase somebody off, but the new version of that, is being somebody that you simultaneously 50% think that you are smarter or better than and dumber than like, like that's, that's the best, the the best okay. version of it. And, and everybody else, it's like, if, especially in the take economy, you, you know, every once in a while, there's somebody that you really love and you're like, man, that guy never misses, but every once in a while they do. And you're like, Oh, I think I'm smarter than my favorite take person <laughs> because they, they said something that I know, I know more than them about. Uh, and yeah, yet and- the ones that are the, the, I think the most sticky are, are folks who just come out and every once in a while it's something smart. And you're like, Oh, I learned something and every once in a while. It's something so dumb. You're like, how could you, how could you, uh, somebody I assume might be half smart even say that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, now that I'm in the independent media world, now that I'm writing a sub stack and putting bread on my table that way, the incentives are extremely clear. The in, It's obvious that if you want to drive numbers, if you want to grow quickly, the thing to do is just be, the loudest person with the sharpest elbows, every single culture war conflict, jump in with both feet, make waves. I'm glad those metaphors added up. <laughs> jump in with both feet. <laughs> Just make waves. those, 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 those uh, sharp elbows into I'm, the water. It, yeah, well, the sharp, yeah, the sharp elbows don't fit. You can have elbows in the water, though. But yeah, certainly sure, two, of, yeah. two of the three metaphors I used fit together. The point is, <laughs> the point is you definitely just want to be noisy. Which yeah. is something I, I try not to do on my Substack, but I, I also try. I've written one or two columns about how obvious these incentives are and how, how clear it is that if you want to make money, be noisy, stir up, cause yeah. confrontations. And one of the funny things is the people who don't like you, the people who disagree with you will tweet you more anger, yes, yeah. which then drives your numbers. It's a it's a weird, weird system. Yeah. You know, it's it's uh, a listener put in our in our discord a uh, some BBC documentary about 
I, I'm not even going to name the the right wing, you know, uh, uh, ethnocentric uh, person, but uh, fill in your head, whatever idiot that uh, people have given a lot of uh, attention to over the last mm. few years. And it was like, like positioning it to a largely British audience who has never heard of them and aren't people like us that live in this political world that like, oh, look, look at how many people this guy talks to. Look at like what a, what a, what a threat he is. And it's like nobody would ever talk about this guy mm-hmm. if we were not elevating him to yeah. be the sign of rot that like uh, uh, the that, that, you know, we assume the world yeah. is going to fall over because of that. This is the 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 thing at the fulcrum of our society that is rotting out and, and we're going to fall over when really it's like, would anybody even know this guy? Yeah. And by the way, the stuff he's saying is less weird than like what the John Birch Society was saying 40 years ago. <laughs> and and, yeah. and it, the world moved on like, like it, it didn't yeah. fall apart. But because, you know, I don't know. Yeah, the 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 most maddening, most face smacking version of that is when, uh, you know, there'll be some incredibly lame white supremacy thing, you know, six guys in somewhere <laughs> in the middle of nowhere having yeah. a white supremacist pool party. And then Slate will write it up or whoever will write it up as, you know, yeah. white supremacist meeting. It's like, just let the six idiots burn themselves out. Yeah. Don't react to it. Nobody ever would have known that they were having a, you know, what they call a rally, but it was really more an excuse to drink beer, right? Well, or to try and attract the attention of Slate. <laughs> like, you know, that's yeah. that's real. I mean, like, as everybody now knows, like you said, <laughs> the incentives are very clear. The incentives yeah, are, are 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 there. So it's like I, I think that a lot of a lot of the times it is, you know, uh, between whatever desire to own the other side, and that very much to get back to Gutfeld is, mm-hmm. I think, the core of the comedy. The core of the comedy now is that. Liberals are humorless. Look at mm-hmm. their what they call comedy. And so that's where I think that the like Colbert's not funny kind of stuff comes in for them. Is that like uh they used to tell jokes, they used mm-hmm. to have, you know, uh, a setup punchline. Now they're they're more uh concerned with tut tutting, let's go Brandon mm-hmm. than than actually being funny. And so now that's that's where there's almost a a glee I see on on the right of like like look we get to be the transgressive naughty people now and and you have boring white bread yeah. politicians saying let's go Brandon and winking into the in, into the camera and they get to be you know some shred of George Carlin because of how humorous <laughs> the, humorless the 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 left is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's certainly that's certainly the angle Gutfeld is going for. And it seems that he's doing it with some success. I mean, you know, I'm on the left. I think I'd be being ridiculous if I didn't say that, yeah, there's some real humorlessness on the left. Sometimes we've become quite reverent. Sometimes we've become very careful. We're very careful to color inside the lines. Uh, you know, th- these are things I'm concerned about. And, you know, on my Substack, I write about them pretty openly. Yeah, it's true. Like, it's part of it's one of the less appealing aspects of, the, you know, the cultural traits that the left has at the moment. It's I don't know. It, it's as a comedian. It's something I really don't like. It feels awfully constrictive. I don't like uh, having words like reverent and respectful yes. and careful in the comedy word word clown of stuff that's happening on the left. And um, 
I, long term, I think it, there's no way it's sustainable. It's just so incompatible with comedy. You can't be those things and also be funny. It can't happen. Uh, yes. And, and, and I don't know. Uh, to me, everything goes back to this thing that happened around The Daily Show and credit to The Daily Show, an, an iconic trailblazing program. So I don't mean to Absolutely. say that they did anything wrong. The culture wanted to make liberal comedy, transgressive comedy during the Bush administration into Mark Twain, into something important. John Stewart mm-hmm. wasn't just an incredibly funny comedian in the prime of his career doing a, you know, amazing work. He was America's newsman. He was Walter Cronkite yeah, for, right. for, for a generation. And it's yeah. like, as soon as that becomes important, then it becomes important for you to do the right things and have the right people on. And at that point, and now we're, we are where we are, where it's like, if you have a platform, then you need to use your platform correctly or else, you know, you are now seen as, as less than, and, and, and all of that gets in the way of like, Hey, if everybody thinks Hillary Clinton's a suspicious liar, why don't we do a joke about Hillary Clinton being a suspicious liar? Everybody in the room still going to vote for her over Donald Trump, but we have to <laughs> make jokes about things that people kind of know in their hearts or else yeah. we're losing the point of comedy, especially political comedy. It, it is a weird thing that happens and that certainly happened to Jon Stewart, where you're right. He did take on a position of authority. And you're also right that in that era, in the you know 2000s into the 2010s, he definitely had a lot of cultural heft on the left. And, yeah. you know, I was certainly a person who I liked Jon Stewart a lot. And one of the reasons I tuned into that show every night, and I did tune in every single night, was because I wanted to hear what he had to say. I cared about his take. It's weird for a comedian to end up in that situation. And I kind of saw John Oliver uh you know, fall backwards into this, you know, and I, the relationship with John Oliver and me, it's always a employee employer relationship. We didn't, we weren't like fast friends. Nonetheless, I could still see that the, the, the sense that I got from him is like, I signed up to be a comedian. I didn't sign up to, you know, have a, show that people care about and like be part of the capital D dialogue. You know, it's like you start doing stand up in your early twenties. And then one thing leads to another. And next thing you know, you have a show on TV and people care what about what you say. It's weird. It's kind of some, he didn't sign up for nonetheless, when you are on TV and people do care what you say. And by the way, I think this is something Joe Rogan's like, yep. Figuring out right now. He's learning right now. Yeah. Yeah. You, it, it is simply the reality that you do have responsibilities to be, you know, intellectually honest, uh, things like that have some level of journalistic integrity. That's, that's an awfully haughty term to attach to comedy, but like you're on TV, people are listening to you. It's just kind of a responsibility you have to accept whether you like it or not, but it's weird because it, it doesn't square well with the irreverent nature of comedy. Does yeah. it, it doesn't square well with being the, the kid at the back of the room, throwing spit wads at the teacher. It's hard to square that circle. And I think what you're seeing right now is a lot of the shows kind of struggling with that and trying to figure out exactly where they fit in. You know, we had um, Jack Allison, who was a former uh, uh, Kimmel writer on a few months ago, uh, talking about, you know, comedy and late night and stuff like that. And he was saying that he had since left after this uh, uh, transformation had fully kind of taken hold. But in writing the monologue, it used to be the funniest joke would be the last joke before you go into 
the commercial and mm-hmm. slowly, you know, you kind of see it evolve, especially through the Trump years that that became the serious, like from the heart moment. Yeah. That yeah. became the moment where you're like, and we need to get these kids out of the cages and that clapping, that emotion of mm-hmm. political validation takes you in to the commercial. And like that, that to me might be the final moment where you're like, okay, this is being done for the right reasons, not necessarily the funny reasons. <laughs> the funniest reasons. You know, and, yeah. and and I mean that even regardless of where you are on the political spectrum, that's that's what they are going for. They're going for, we're going to say the thing, we're going to be, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. Righteous. Right. And and it's not necessarily going to be like, uh, um, you know, and then his pants fell down or something. And, uh, you know, yeah. which is a joke. It was weird in the Trump era. Trump absolutely backed comedians into a corner and that you had to talk about the guy. You had to talk about the guy. He was the elephant in the room. Um, but in my opinion, it became awfully goddamn unfunny after a year or two. It was just it, it, the same I, I shit think, over and over. And I wrote oh, a lot of it, but. Oh, it's, it was uh, drivel. I mean, it was awful. I, I think the other, <laughs> the other problem with Trump, I think mechanically for comedy was the fact that for a politician, he was really funny. Like he was making jokes. He was saying things that were like whether or not you found it personally humorous. They were jokes that he was when he's calling Elizabeth Warren Pocahontas. It is a it's joke. Kind of funny. It's it's yes. Whether or not you <laughs> it's can. A little, you're, it's you're, not. Your, is your it, point is it of, right? Is it good? I don't know. It was a little Whether funny. or not you were laughing at it, it he is making a joke. And one of the yeah. cornerstones of comedy is like, it's, you don't put a hat on a hat. It's hard to make jokes yep. about a guy who's making jokes. It's hard. It's, it's, it's hard to do that. Uh, it, it was. And, and you're right. Especially like in the 26 campaign, he was basically doing stand up, and that he would go to these rallies and he'd have these crowds. And if he did a line and it worked, you would see that line show up again the next night and the night after that, which is exactly how it works in stand up. That was yes. No, that's I mean, one of the I've, thousand I've, I've covered problems. enough Trump rallies in the room that like uh-huh. you watch the energy of the crowd. So it's like he's basically doing the most low risk stand up where yes. he's like he can just go and he drones and he's like ah, the, yeah, the things and the other stuff. And I did that. And I, one time I went on a plane and he'll watch yeah. he'll the, the energy of the crowd will go down and, and he'll just say like. Pocahontas. Ah, now yeah. everybody's now everybody's back he up. Had, he had one riff that I swear to God was stolen from a Drew Carey bit. His his riff about it. his riff about you'd be like, yeah, they say you can't. Use, it's this classic Trump because it's so stupid. He's like, yeah, yeah, they say you can't use the hairspray. You can't use the hairspray because of global warming. I say it's ten degrees outside. Let's use some hairspray. You know, I'm paraphrasing, but I think I'm that is a Drew close. Carey bit. I think it I, is a Drew Carey. Drew Carey had a bit about bit. Yes, yes, it's a I remember Drew that. Carey bit. Yeah, yes. So I think Drew you know, Carey. He's talking about being in like a Cleveland winter spraying the exactly. the, the hairspray. Yeah. You know the bit. Yeah, I that's do know the, the bit. bit. Yeah, I think Drew Carey's got a case. I think he could take Trump's report over that. <laughs> but yes, you're right. That is one of that is one of a hundred reasons why Trump was so hard to deal with as a comedian. And, you know, I don't think at the end of the day, we really covered ourselves in glory in the field. Um, But it's also true that, because I want to go back to what you said about, you know, the last joke in the monologue used to be the big hitter. And then it became the one you clapped to. Like I'm still in the political comedy space. It still is possible. I'm finding it possible to still make jokes and do comedy. Yes. But it's, you're cooking with two ingredients when you're doing political comedy. You know, you got the jokes 
And then you got the, the information points. or the takes, yeah. the, yeah, the points, whatever you want to call it. Um, I'll tell you that second thing, the points, the takes, that's a lot easier. Writing jokes is hard. Writing jokes <laughs> is hard. And if you can make it so that you don't have to write a joke because you can just say the thing that you know everyone's going to agree with, my God, that makes things a lot easier. Yes. And I'm speaking as somebody who worked in the field and wrote these scripts. And I admit that I've done it myself. Sometimes when you don't have a joke, you just you write the applause line instead. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in, in, in an era where it was challenging, then th- that's what happens. And now we have Gutfeld. So we've, we've traced the entire history of political comedy from 2000 to 2022. <laughs> uh, uh, and we have done so uh, with the great Jeff Maurer. Uh, uh, again, one more time, let everybody know where people can find your writing. I might be wrong.substack.com. Thanks so much for your, uh, coming on. Thanks for having me. Politics, Politics, Politics is written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young, for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. Hey, uh, I thought that was a great conversation with Jeff. If you want to let him know that you enjoyed the conversation, then head on over to px3guest.com. That is letter P, letter X, number three, guest.com. It'll bring you to his Twitter. And he's a comedian. He needs compliments. Trust me. It is it is a known thing. Comedians, journalists, we're fragile people. We need we need compliments uh, or else we'll wither and die like E.T. If you'd like to email the show, it is theyoungamerican at gmail.com. The Twitter is PX3 Tweets. You can find me Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on Twitch, px3live.com. Uh, the newsletter, px3newsletter.com. I got another essay thing. It's in the chamber. We're ready to fire. Podcast. Uh, this podcast can be shared with your friends, family, clergy. px3podcast.com. Uh, our merch is found at politicsmerch.com. Hey, you want to be like our boy, Alan, that we mentioned earlier? Then uh, you can support us with a one-time donation. PayPal.me slash payjury. Our Venmo is justin-young-20. Our cash app is px3cash. And you can send Anything physical that you would like in the mail to P.O. Box 1531-84, Austin, Texas, 78715. All that being said, very appreciated, no matter what. But if you want bonus content, if you like this and you'd like more, you head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week, covering all the news that we miss on our free podcast schedule. And the $10 tier gets your name read like these Fine folks in the $10 tier. Idris Arslandian, DJ Katie Mack, Neemeister, Dr. G, Admiral Flapjack, Utah Jimmy Montana, Edmund Pluribus Unum, Pete Spicetti, 70s TV salesman, or spy. And Gloria Young for King of the New World Order. Zombie Doc Edison, no mention on the podcast, please. Dot com Junkie, DP4 Bongo, Jewish Lives Matter, 100 Mile Runner, Staff Sergeant Poopers, Diana's uh, Silent Slumbers, Berkeley Stephen, Adam L, Katie Stetch, Double K Ranch, Yield Pinball Shop, John, The Opposable Thumbs for Dogs Foundation, Super Zoomy, Neil Patel. Charles Sutherland, Darren Kitchen, 
Olin and Angela, DL, Stephen, Chad, Matt, Miranda, Janelle, Chief Andy, Robert, Casey, Paul, Dustin, Richard, D. Laser, Just Another Pilot, Middle Age, Mike, The Gen, J. Pink, and Andrew. If you would like your name read amongst all of them, you can do so. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Hey, that was a great show. We're going to have to follow it up on Friday, huh? Hmm. What do you say for the first time in the year of our Lord, 2022, we convene a political triad? Oh, yes. In what I believe will be a pretty big year for, for, for the, 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 the triad. Young, Heaton, Briny. We're going to come together. Briny's in, in friggin' Portugal, too. So she's calling in from all the way across the globe. She might be drunk on sangria. I don't even know. Heaton's going to be here. We're definitely going to talk about Ukraine because I think Briny's fired up about Ukraine and uh, anything else that comes to our mind. So enjoy that on Friday. If you are on the uh, PX3 Extra, uh, then uh, you're also going to get the latest on everything uh, on on Thursday's show, including the fact, this is something that I wasn't able to get to here, but man, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, everybody who's, who's getting, getting all of my, all of my, my craw, when I was talking about parents being fed up with schools, there was just a recall attempt in San Francisco. And part of it was because they believed, the parents believed that the school board was being too woke in San Francisco. We'll get the results to that. I mean, maybe, maybe it's not that big of an issue, but it, it certainly seems like it's going to be a close election. You'll get the results for that on Thursday. All right, that'll be it. Till next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics. But this, this is the only show that dares discuss. Oh, three. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.